Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So we were working together, broadcasting on the internet, but I didn't start with Welcome Back to Troubleshooting Agile. We were together <laughs> uh, on a live stream, part of my Squirrel Squadron series, um, and we were discussing releasing 50 times a day. And that was a lot of fun, but it, it wasn't a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I had a lot of the same, uh, same same elements of it, you know, us discussing things. But it was kind of fun because it, it part it was there was a history level uh, lesson element of it, which uh, we we do less of here on the on the podcast typically. Yep, but uh, you you thought it would make also a good podcast episode because of some things that happened afterwards. What what do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, yeah, I was I was inspired to bring it up because there have been. Um, someone on Twitter who uh, retweeted it. So thank you for that. And and they mentioned that they, uh, what stood out to them was a part of the uh, topic, their discussion, and we were talking about how to make small changes. Um, you know, this, this was an interactive discussion. Someone had asked, made the comment about how difficult it is when there's a database involved and sometimes there's changes that are breaking. And I described a pattern of how you can make incremental changes that you know, evolve, you evolve your database so that it always works and you don't have a single breaking change. Um, I won't bother repeating it here because you can listen to it in the, <laughs> in, in the recording of the live stream, which we'll put in the show notes. But the, the, the thing that, uh, that I wrote back to the person, I said, well, gosh, if you like this, you'll probably like this book called Refactoring Databases. And I gave them a link and they were, they were pleased about that. But it, it had me wondering that there's so much knowledge that has come out and it's one thing to kind of learn the things that are current at the time but what happens to things that are happened a long time ago decades ago i mean the 50 times a day that was inspired by a, a blog post from 2009 yeah so we weren't talking about anything new we're talking about something that's you know literally more than a decade old and the refactoring database book is is even older uh, and the thing that drove me nuts about both of them was the the fact that the uh, uh, these ideas had come out had been sort of forgotten, and then people were asking me questions about uh, how how do you handle this? You know, what, what, how do we use this thing called continuous integration? We all seem to have it. How how should we use it? And I said, <laughs> how could you not know about releasing fifty times a day? How could you not know about refactoring databases in this uh, incremental way? If you're uh, if you're using continuous integration, so in some sense we got half of the idea, but then some other bits of it have been lost. Yeah, that's right. And it made me wonder, like, this has got to be true for our other classics as well. I mean, it, I think one of the most um, cited books at KitCon in the uh, 2000s would have been Michael Feather's book, Working Effectively uh, with Legacy Code, uh, one of the classics for anyone doing um, t testing and trying to bring testing into an existing code base, which would be most people. And that was such a, a, a seminal book. And I wonder how many people are aware of it today. I think it's it might, might be one of those kind of lost gems in many cases. And it and it, it, it kind of made me wonder, well, what do you what do you do if you have a new development team and you're wanting to get better? You know, how do you know about these? I, I remember the solution that that uh, you had at, at Tim Group that is kind of explained how I ended up working there, <laughs> which is someone said, oh, you need a gray beard. Um, but with the idea that you need to have someone who actually knows about these things and experience them in real time. But I find that I find that very odd that we would be so dependent on, you know, the individuals who happen to live through the experience when these things are being formed. 
but I, I left me as kind of a puzzle. You know, is there a, a other ways that we can expect people to to be able to get in touch with the the literature that's out there, or is that just n- not something to concern that people have? Uh, well, certainly we'd love to hear from listeners and uh, to hear them say, well, yeah, I remember this practice and whatever happened to that. Uh, and and or I'm trying to answer this question and that somebody has probably solved this before, but I'm having trouble finding it. That, that would be a good future topic. So please if, write in if you if you have any of those experiences, Twitter would be a good place or, or email. We'll, we'll do the normal uh, links and so on at the end. But it, it strikes me that um, uh, in some sense, I make my living by being such a gray beard. Although I, I um, my body re- steadfastly refuses to grow, <laughs> refuses to grow any kind of beard, uh, much less a gray one. Um, but uh, uh, we we hired you, Jeffrey, because we wanted um, a storyteller. What do you call them? A shaman or a, 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 a sort of a historian? <laughs> um, you know, sitting around the campfire telling us what sorts of things people had tried before. And you would reach back. I remember uh, uh, our CEO remarked on this. He said, it's just amazing how many stories Jeffrey has from 1992. Uh, he keeps telling us about uh, uh, Borland, and I, I don't even remember what Borland was. And, but um, you drew on those stories, and they pointed us to the right material, and then we could learn the material, and it was very helpful to us. And and I kind of function that way for my clients, and I think you do too. Well, people uh, have asked me, uh, you know, in the last day or so uh, about um, uh, handling a, a a conversation in which someone yelled at them, and, and I'll refer them to material I was reading and studying with you back in, in 2010 from Chris Argyris, um, or they'll uh, in, inquire about uh, how they can uh, help someone to get onboarded very quickly, and I'll say, have you tried this thing called pairing? And um, if, they, uh, <laughs> if they've never heard of it, uh, then I know that there's rich material there, and I'm, I'm bringing that back up to them, and I can refer them to the uh, XP Explained and, and other materials. And, and, of course, we have wonderful tools for pairing now, but that's yet another practice that uh, uh, has, has um, kind of made its way through the hype cycle. It's settled down to a relatively low level of hype, and y- you need a gray beard to, to find it for you, it seems to me. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear about another way. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious how other people uh, view this. If they see it as a problem, that maybe they're like, well, no, I just go to Stack Overflow. You know, <laughs> I, Google solves this for me. I don't, I don't need to find books. I don't need to know who wrote the book. I just, I just need the answer. I, I wonder if that's how people see it. I remember because one of the things that struck me very early in my career, and this is again, you know, back in, in the olden days, um, um, while I was still at Borland, in fact, maybe 97 or so, I was reading uh, a book that was talking about uh, making the point about how few um, developers at the time read books. And that's maybe more remarkable at the time because now there's a lot of other options, which is, you know, people can be watching YouTube videos. There's a lot of interactive tutorials on the net, you you know, that, that you can go search and find lots of things through Google. And that was much less true in 1996, 97. And this person was referencing even earlier, and it was was remarking how few people ever read uh, an article on programming, uh, how few people ever read books on programming, how few people attended conferences. In other words, how little effort as a profession people put into learning about their profession, and uh, that was a that was a, um, a striking um, uh, insight to me because I was naturally someone who always was interested in reading. I always had the view that you said that someone else must have solved this. Um, and my whole view of science was sort of, we grew by having common literature. 
I, I, I don't know uh, that this is still happens in uh, software or if, if it uh, maybe it's never happened in software. What, what was, how do people learn about, about the literature and uh, what, what the classics are, you know, what even, you know, there's probably a, a handful of classics that people might still read. I imagine mythical man month might be one of the oldest books that might still get referred to uh, new programmers. It was on my father's shelf. <laughs> was it really? Okay. It was. Yeah. I used to read it when I was 10 and I didn't understand anything. <laughs> I just thought my dad has it must be a good book. Uh, what on earth could these weird words mean? I didn't really understand it till I reread it twenty years later. And it's and it's and it's reasonable that that maybe that we you know we don't have a literature that spans you know decades and decades, given that uh, it is a relatively new profession. But I, I I do wonder like where where will it happen that the uh, canon of programming literature, um, things like Peopleware, or um, uh, a code complete or the pragmatic programmer, you know, will, will there be a possibility for these things to be, uh, remembered and, and, and put out there as something, you know, worth, uh, reading 20 years after they were published and 20 years or more after they were published, where, where, where does, where does someone go to learn, you know, here's the foundational books. I mean, I guess one answer is you go ask on Twitter, <laughs> but I, I wonder if you get recency bias there. And I have the feeling that one reason people don't do that kind of thing, uh, that they may not go and look, is that it, it uh, in software it always feels like you're doing something new. Nobody has ever built an um, automated uh, drone delivery system for Rubik's Cubes. And, um, you know, we're building the first one, you know, it's very difficult, hard to pick up the cube, and, you know, the, the, the mechanics of actually getting the, the gripper to, to grip a, a smooth uh, cubicle surface, that's really tough. Um, so uh, why, why would we need to consult the, the history books in order for somebody to understand how to do this? Uh, in fact, the problems of testing that system and um, refactoring that system and deciding whether this is actually a good idea are all problems that uh, people have been struggling with throughout the history of software, but uh, it somehow feels new. I wonder if that's a driver. It, it, that's a good point, and it, it certainly at least the because all the technology is changing, the the languages are changing, the frameworks are changing, and um, so much of the uh, what you work with day to day, what you're looking at on screen changes. It might feel like there's no relevance to to those earlier times and earlier lessons. Um, I, I do recall being at. Uh, conferences uh, back in the 2000s and, and listening to Bob Martin, or, you know, uh, Robert C. Martin, or, or Uncle Bob, as people would call him then, um, someone who's less referenced these days. But one of the things that was notable about his talks is he would often ground his talks in uh, classic literature, and he would cite books from the from the 70s um, in the 2000s. And, and he had some of this uh, it, about him saying, you know, it's worth understanding the lessons that past generations learned because it helps us understand, you know, what's constant about programming, what's constant about making software and that we can get uh, better insights uh, into these things, into these, this literature with the passage of time and, and to take really the, the heart of the lessons with us. I remember something Steve Jobs said. He said, um, you know, in a thousand years, um, people will just remember that there was this sort of, uh, golden age or maybe they'll think of it as a dark age or something something happened back in in this ancient time and they don't remember whether it was the 20th or the 21st century 
kids will get it mixed up in school and things. Um, but uh, there'll there'll be a um, kind of accretion of uh, kind of uh, sedimental archaeological layers, and and at that point we will have solved a number of difficult software engineering problems. This, I guess, is assuming that the human race continues and so on. Um, but, <laughs> but he said, it, it, it's very unlikely that people will remember any of our individual contributions. He, he may be an exception. He can't tell uh, at, this, uh, at this early stage. But um, most of us will, will not be um, memorable for our individual contribution the way we remember Galileo or, or Einstein um, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later. But... Um, we, the, what we can hope to be part of is that sort of accretion of, of value. And the thing I slightly worry about is that there may not be as much accretion. <laughs> Some of it isn't seeping through. <laughs> um, maybe it just is a process of uh, re-remembering. That's a, that's, a, that's a good point. And actually, it touches on something that in, in um, the Agile Conversations Slack group, uh, there was a, a listener uh, who we both used to work with, uh, uh, Joel, who um, was taking us a bit to task for our, uh, our our analogy last time of cooks versus nutritionists. Ooh, okay. Criticism. Excellent. And from a great source. <laughs> That's right. And and Joel made the point that, um, you know, th- these metaphors and analogies can, can really uh, uh, confuse and, and hide differences as much as they illuminate. And he made the case that, by contrast, uh, there's jargon, uh, although he called it domain-specific language, but, you know, it's... Um, or domain-specific words, but that's that's to me the the word for that is jargon. <laughs> that that jargon be, can be very powerful and helpful, and it had me thinking that uh, jargon is fantastic. But the challenge is is that you need enough sort of common experience. You you need to build up a shared understanding of what the jargon means, and that one of the challenges perhaps now it occurs to me as uh, having a discipline where people aren't uh, uh, collecting. The lessons and over time they aren't accreting this is that maybe that comes out a bit in the and maybe our paucity of of durable jargon because we're we're so much into the new thing we we don't have enough shared experience we don't have this accreted you know here's the term of art that uh correctly describes for example how to evolve your database to harken back to the refactoring databases example that the these these terms are are not coined um, we have kind of a shallow language for what we do because we aren't uh, learning and collecting and, and collating these uh, lessons as we go along. Okay. Well, um, I, I'm really interested to hear what listeners think. I'm, I'm now going to go read Joel's comment because that sounds fascinating. And uh, if, if listeners would like to join in, there are lots of ways they can answer our questions, um, express similar confusion. Maybe they'll tell us wh- where this uh, secret trove of uh, current knowledge is. Uh, or maybe if you read the show notes, uh, you'll have some comments on the, the uh, old technologies, old ideas, old principles that, um, that we're uh, bringing back to your attention here. Uh, we'll try to list as many of those as we can. Uh, if you want to do any of those things, you can find us on agileconversations.com. Uh, Twitter's a great place. You can write to us and ask to be on Slack. Um, uh, it's invitation only, but we're, we're very liberal about that. Uh, you can uh, get in touch with us by email. There's free videos, all kinds of good stuff. And, of course, we'll be back again next week, maybe with your contributions and ideas, with another episode of Troubleshooting Agile. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Squirrel.